Welcome to the Moves Room, everybody. This is Dr. Joe Armstrong. We had a super long recording session with our guests, and we're gonna have to break this into two episodes. Fortunately, it really broke down into two parts. We talk a lot about extension and the differences between our states. Uh, and we talk a lot about beef production in the first episode that you're gonna hear here. We're gonna fade out, we'll come back next episode, finish our conversation with our guests, talk a lot more about pasture and topics that Bradley is very interested in when we're looking at the differences in grass use and things like that uh, between our state and our guest state. If you've been listening religiously to the, to the Moose Room, you will notice that we are out of order with our episodes. This episode was actually recorded before our Selective Dry Cow Therapy episode with Dr. Sandra Godden. And we got out of order for no other reason than I was sleep deprived and didn't catch up in time to get to get everything out in order. No excuses, that's, that's what I got for you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being understanding about things being a little out of order. Let's get into this episode. Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. We have another guest this week. It's not just the OG3. You're not stuck just listening to me and Brad and Emily. We have another guest. Emily found this one. Brad found the last one, so it was Emily's turn. Who's with us today, Em? Well, I am really excited about the guest we have with us today. Also, you know, through the joys of technology, we are able to explore extension and and cattle uh, throughout the country. So we're joined today by a good friend of mine who works for extension in West Virginia, actually. And we met uh, through National Extension Conference a few years ago. Uh, He's been a good friend for a few years now. And so it is my pleasure to introduce John David Johnson. He is the agriculture agent for Jackson County, West Virginia, not Jackson County, Minnesota, Jackson County, West Virginia. Welcome, John David. Thank you for having me. I'm, I was kind of, you know, when you when you approach me there, I said, well, that, that sounds like fun. So, you know, we uh, we probably do things a little bit different uh, than other parts of the state and our state. So uh, our other parts of the country. So I, I'm, I was kind of interested in coming on and kind of see how y'all see how y'all run the uh, beef programs and forage programs in Minnesota. We're excited to talk it into that more. We're going to talk a lot about the differences between the states and 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 how things differ management wise. Get into the beef side quite a bit. We have two questions before we start everything. We and whenever we have a guest, we ask them the same questions, and we'll start with dairy this time. We need to know. Your favorite dairy breed has to be a purebred breed, no crossbreds. What is your favorite dairy breed? Oh, well, we're, we're not really dairy state. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he looks very taken aback by this question. He was not yeah. ready for this. If you threw out beef there, I would probably threw out a crossbred to get a little, uh, uh, a little hybrid vigor. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've kind of got a soft spot for an old jersey you know yes oh man Uh, dairy's out there and you see those few jerseys in there to bump up that butter fat and you you, they're like in a sea of giants and they're like okay okay i like something a little different perfect well that is the correct choice as we all know (laughs) right jersey is the best that's the correct choice that that puts them ahead of everyone now jerseys have three votes holsteins have two Dutch belted with two, Normandy with one, Brown Swiss with one, and Montbelliard with one. So that that's the correct choice. Brad, myself, and now John David all voting for Jersey. 
Yes. I want to know what Emily voted for because her eyes about rolled out of the back of her head. <laughs> I could see them like marbles just spinning. <laughs> so, well, I'm, I'm curious, what did you vote for? My vote was for Dutch Belted. I, I was figuring that. We, that we have on. discussed Dutch Belted before. <laughs> okay, so let's let's get away from dairy. We we do have to ask you your favorite beef breed as well. We we try not to do any crossbreeds. So oh, if you have, a, you're I know, me. I know, but <laughs> I I know you raise baldies, so you got to have purebreds to have crossbreds. And I love I love the baldies. I do. You're allowed to do a composite breed, which I don't know when we decided that was okay. Um, but as long as it's a separate we didn't. breed, we didn't decide that. <laughs> okay. Well, someone threw out stabilizer last week and. I'm still conflicted about it, but what is your favorite? I, I might even, I'd let you go with Baldy. If you wanted to choose Baldies, that'd be fine. At least you get half the Okay, Joe, you're just throwing yeah, yeah, all the rules out the window They're now? It would be all better the than Dexter's or something like that. You know, I could throw out something strange, you know, one of the ornamental cows. But no, I'll have to go with probably, since the market, you know, Angus has been going so well in, in marketing and they get the higher price. You know, I'm like everybody in agriculture, you go where the money is. So, uh, I'm gonna go with baldies, and but you can cover up a lot of sins with a black bull too. You we know, are on the same page. Whatever goes, I, I'll go with a black baldy though. All right. Well, I'll who give invited you. this guy? I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that well, that's a great choice. Baldies, black baldy. We've got half the you know black Angus, and then half of Brad's vote, which is for Hereford. Baldies have been around forever. They're a separate breed in my mind at this point. I'm throwing the rules out. I can do that. I produce the thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that puts us at Black Angus with three, Hereford with one, Kianina with one. You can guess who voted for Kianina. Uh, Brahmin for one, Stabilizer with one, and now Black Baldies with one vote. Okay. Those are the, the important thing questions. thing is just a hot mess now. I, it's fine. I don't mind. It's fine. <laughs> We've got the, the important questions out of the way. Got the important questions out of the way. Now, I guess we should talk about what we're supposed to talk about. Uh, the differences between Minnesota and West Virginia. Let's start with extension, like because we're all in extension, even in different states. You're, you're an agricultural county agent, right, John David? So you, you don't just do beef, even though that's your preferred topic. No, right? I'm all ag. Oh, it's, it's pretty much... I have to be pretty much well-rounded, I guess you can say. The older I get, the the more I look that way too. But, uh, but you know, we, we get questions from, you know, beef, cattle, and hay is obviously 75% of our agricultural income in the county. So that's kind of what I specialize in. That was my wheelhouse. So I fit in fit in very well here with the agricultural systems. But also we're, we're getting a lot more high tunnels, you know, that extend that horticulture's season and up here in these cooler higher elevations that we're in because there's there's a there's a lot of uh, people that are interested in in agricultural that may not have the landscape to do so we have a lot of hillsides a lot of uh, I wouldn't say useless land but land that you really cannot uh, occupy in an agricultural setting unless you're growing timber that land that's on those steeper hillsides but uh, other than that, you know, we do have some really uh, small bottoms and really good soil in it. Uh, you know, your low-lying soil, silty loams in this area. Uh, and, you know, they can put up a high tone, you know, where they can not really be beneficial to run that many cattle. 
or really cut that hay, but uh, they could feed their family, increase that nutrition. So get a lot of those, a lot of, lot of gardening questions to go with that. Here's something right here. I want to reach out and grab this. Let's see, I, I kept this and I, I've never taken it down. Let's see, uh, May 16th, 2011. This little lady come in, uh, Miss Harper, and brought me this knockout rose leaf and little holes all in it, you know. It's dead, it's been shriveled up. But I put it up there because that was my first agricultural question in you know, my job. And, uh, and, and so I just want to cut in to say, <laughs> since we're not visual here, uh, he literally has a little plastic baggie with this like decrepit old holy leaf in it. So that's and, and it's been taken up a great on the side memento. Of the yeah, <laughs> for for ten years now, it's been sitting up there collecting dust. But I can't. I, the lady's passed away, but uh, you know she brought that in there, and you know I tried to help her with you know insecticide protocols. We do a lot of uh, what's this fungus, what's this bug try to identify it if they do not have the insect or, you know, the plant, then that's when we help them treat it after we identify it. So that was kind of my first farm question. But, uh, you know, we get everything. You know, what's what's wrong with my lawn? You know, why is there broom's edge all in my pastures, even though that I haven't limed in 20 years? We answer everything. Now, that's just on the ag side. Now, I have co-workers, a family and health agent. Uh, she answers the family and health questions. Uh, they even do like read to me mommy, you know, seminars where they go into the prisons and take the, the ladies reading books and then mail the tape to their kids. I mean, stuff like that, you know, more family-based programs. Then we have nutritionists that, you know, adult and youth nutritionists that stay in the community or in the schools that talk about nutrition. You know, I can work with them quite well because we're growing the vegetables. I can work with the youth growing vegetables and they take them and do the nutritional lessons. So that, that works out good. And then one of the bigger programs uh, along with ag is 4-H. WVU is a 4-H state. Uh, and, and it amazed me coming from South Georgia where I was born, we had 4-H, I was in 4-H and you know, in my state you're in 4-H long enough to get into FFA. Then once you're in FFA that carries you on through uh, high school. But here, I mean, they really bleed green. I mean, they have every county has their own 4-H camp. You know, we have a camp every year with about anywhere from 350 to 400 kids at 4-H camp every year. And that's wow. just my county. Wow. But that's great because all of them take a project. And a lot of those are animal-related projects. So I have a county fair. And just my county fair, you know, we're looking at, 500 plus animals really and wow at a county fair at, at a county fair i have 223 <laughs> hogs alone oh yeah that, and that's by comparison fun. brad how many dairy do you usually have it's the stevens stevens county, county fair? fair we have uh, you know about 25 dairy and 40 50 uh, beef animals see that we don't do the dairy in my county now mason no. county next to us they do have a dairy project uh, we do beef. We have uh, beef steers, and we usually average anywhere from 38 to 40, you know, uh, steers in the barn. And then we have a replacement heifer program and project, which mm -hmm. they have to own the mother before she gives birth. Okay. So that's it's, it's called a breeding project, and the goats are in line with that. The rabbits uh, are in that also. 
that breeding project where they own that mother, they have to go through the whole birthing process. I like that project because it gives a whole nother aspect of education. So they see it uh, pre and post parturition. And I really like that. And I think those kids learn a lot from, from that, those projects specifically. And that's a great project and that, that helps build a herd. You know, they keep those heifers. Most of those heifers do not sell. Uh, they usually show multiple animals and only they can sell one animal that they shut. The only way they have to sell is if they get grand in reserve. Now our sale, I think we didn't sell this year, obviously we had a little stock market sale. You know, we're not counting that. Last year, each kid only selling one animal. We were about $665,000 uh, sale uh, with each wow. kid selling about one animal. Now, now we've discussed this before, John David. They they sell the actual animal. Yes, yes. Yeah. They on hoof, on yes, hoof, on hoof, which is different. Different. Um, in Minnesota, we do. They're called ribbon auctions. Okay. So, uh, the the local you know organizations in the county they they buy it's a commemorative ribbon, ribbon basically, um, and then you know they get like a picture of the kid and and the oh, project. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we don't do any actual sales of the animals. To me, that's an interesting uh, difference. But right. I do want to kind of steer us back to the egg extension realm here. And since we have another extension employee on, which we don't have extension guests super often, but when we had Michael J. Cruz, PhD, for his poopery episode, I had asked poopery. him, so I'm going to ask you, what's the most interesting question you've gotten? Or like the most interesting call you have gotten? The craziest or the interest? The interest. Um, both. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the, we start with the craziest. I always like the crazies. And, and I can, for some reason, I, I bring them in. <laughs> they love it. Crazy is attractive to me, I do believe. So with the craziest, I have a, a, a gentleman called me and said, I'm trying to get rid, rid of ground moles. Okay. And I said, okay, well, you know, there's different ways. There's pros and cons to all of them. He said, well, I've tried everything. I've tried the baits. I've tried rolling. I've tried the shock, shocking them. I've tried trapping. I said, hold on, let's rewind. You tried shocking. Yes. And I said, walk me through that process. <laughs> you sparked my interest. I, I'm not familiar with this form of control. And he said, okay, well, I, I got a 110 uh line that was hooked straight to my breaker box and i went out there and i split it and i said i see the ground moving i'd stick it in the, the ground he said the problem is the breaker kept break tripping <laughs> and i'm just sitting there just like wow you know i'm glad he called this was a phone call thank god and i'm just sitting there i'm just i'm, I'm just you know there, there's not many moments that just render me speechless but that was one of them and i said okay that's good but you know i said if the breaker wouldn't have tripped you would be dead uh so our electric muted or hurt <laughs> so but that was the most and then he went on to ask me if he could buy skunk because he wanted the skunk take uh moles or no skunk take grubs which he was on the right track which the moles ate and i said well you know you're probably going for a four inch hole now instead of a little rise you know, for the mole. So that's kind of the craziest question. The most interesting, hmm, um, I had uh, kind of puzzled me there for a little bit. 
I had some gardens, you know, gardens on the same road, dying. Everything was dying in the garden. Couldn't figure out why. And each of these three people called me separately, did not contact their neighbor that called me. And so I went out. And after the third one, I said, this couldn't be a coincidence. There's something going on here. All the plants are dying. And I researched and researched, and it went back to one farm they all bought their manure from that was using forefront in their hay. The chemical was still active in forefront in the manure. They got the manure from the same producer. Uh, I explained to the producer there, you cannot let that manure leave your farm, you know, for so long. Uh, I got that corrected, but uh, that was kind of interesting. That was, you know, investigation that we had to do. I, I like stuff like that. Those questions keep you loving that job when you get to do the little investigations and things like that to try to figure out what's going on that, that's it's a nice good one. when you finally actually figure it out <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes you never do but yeah yeah when you can figure it out that feels like you're making a difference and trying to figure out what's going on and and that kind of thing matters a lot to people I'm, I'm always surprised at how much attention and how much people care about their garden and their their gardening program and that's something in at the university of minnesota we see a ton of like a ton we have a master gardener program and that that is a huge program and and consistently the number one reason people even visit the extension website online uh to to look up gardening questions and tree trimming questions and things like that it's a huge source all right well let's talk cattle we are on the moose room we need to talk about yeah. beef cattle i mean i've seen a, a couple things you know from from west virginia as far as like what kind of programs you have out there in, in Minnesota, we tend to focus on, all right, we used to focus on trying to be in person with meetings and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and now since uh, the world has turned upside down, we're doing more of this thing. We're online, we're, we're working on articles, we're working on YouTube channels, we're working on the Moose Room here, the podcast, all sorts of different ways to connect. It looks like you guys have some pretty cool stuff going on though at West Virginia. What do you, what do you got going with uh, the beef side of things? Well, right now we're kind of kind of halfway through the process uh we do a lot of board sales uh we call them calf pools um what we do is we gather the producers up in, in regions and they can join it or not join it of course there's not a force program it's a voluntary program and uh they all have the same management strategies you know weaning dates vaccination patterns types of vaccination uh we all consult with the same veterinarian uh, that's where we get all our vaccinations, dewormers, and everything else. We all have the same calving windows for these programs from, you know, anywhere from January to late March, April is kind of the main calving windows for the spring calving. Now, this is, of course, the spring calving uh, pool. Uh, we do not have a fall calving pool, which some producers have picked up and kind of made their own little pool, and they have their own special sale. Uh, the stockyards or they just deliver the calves at the stockyards at the same time and make their own sale. We do very well uh, with, in my county alone, that probably, you know, we're only looking about 700 calves, you know, to 800 on a really good year, you know, that's steers and heifers. But uh, like this year we sold them for, well, let's say we sold them on September 19th and we will deliver them to the stockyards to be put on semis and put loads together. November 3rd and 4th. So for instance, you know, you get that, you get that extra 60 days or so, well, a little less than 60 days at that point. We wean for 60 days 
Uh, we were 45 days, but that was a management decision we made as a group. You may always vote on it. Um, it's, it's very, you know, producer input driven. So, you know, we, we had a couple uh, little issues there and we said, well, I think we can fix this problem by pushing that weaning from 45 to 60 and to prove to our buyers that we're committed uh, to that and preconditioning. So, you know, we sell them there in September and then we deliver them in November. So you have that extra time to put a little bit of weight on them. And I'm not sure if y'all's markets hold and, and stay as similar as ours, but usually in November into September, you'll see that market decline. Uh, but you sold them back in September, you know, 19th in this year. Usually the markets are a little higher. So you still get that same price with holding those cattle over and putting that extra little bit of weight on them and preconditioning than uh, in November as you did back then. So if you look at the prices from November and September and compare those same prices when you deliver, you usually make a little bit of money extra. Yeah, that, that's a, there's always a, a decline as there's more calves that come into the market. And so we see that in Minnesota as well. I, I love this idea and being able to be a part of it is, is something that I had started to work on when I was in private practice with some of my, my producers and trying to put that kind of thing together. But it's such a great idea to have uh, to increase your power in the market by, by having a group of cattle that are marketed similarly or the same and then have the same background. It gives a lot of confidence to that buyer and that, that feedlot uh, being able to buy a big group that they know the history and all those kind of things. And that it really is taking, you know, what would be if they were all sold separately and then put together later, you know, that, I mean, that would be a medium to high risk group, depending on the management. And now you've taken it and created a super low risk group by, by having everyone on the same page and, and all those kind of things. And that, that is what people want on the feedlot side, low risk, uh, and then being able to benefit both sides where you, you get to lock in the price for that producer on the cow-calf side. I love the idea. Uh, I would love to get something going like that here in Minnesota. We'll just put it out there. Maybe someone will hear this on the podcast and tell me to run with it. We'll see. Well, if not, Stranger you know, things you have to West Virginia buy some really good preconditioned <laughs> double vaccinated weaned cows. The, the double <laughs> vaccinated. We can go to West Virginia to get them if we need to. So you're saying that you're weaning for 60 days in that group. What, what do you mean by that? How, what does that mean when you say you're weaning for 60 days? Well, we've, of course, pulled them off the mother. Uh, and, you know, we've already vaccinated. Usually give the vaccination the last day there uh, at least. Uh, I like to actually vaccinate mine a little earlier so it gets in their system before I, I move them off their mother. You know, of course, weaning is just pulling them off the cow. So, you know, every farm is set up probably the same in Minnesota, every production is different. But, you know, you have some that uh, fence line wean, so they just move the cows on the other side of the fence. Some take the calves down the road to another farm. Some put in, I've even tried nose clips. Last year I'd done that actually before I weaned, so I actually weaned a little more in 60 days, but it allowed that calf to stay on the side of that mother without sucking, you know, and, and kind of transition its diet a little easier. And uh, they started eating grain a little bit quicker, I think, than they did this year, where I took the mothers away, but I still left them two fall cow babysitters with them to try to, you know, pick up their habits and teach them how to eat out of that bunk a little smoother. 
Um, so there's different ways to do it. I do it different. I'm an extension agent, so I like to play with different methods, and, and I have that, that leniency to do that. But getting these cattle on the set diet that we want them on, eating out of the bunk, drinking out of that trough, you know, where they go into these feed yards and they're already kind of prepped. They're not standing around, just kind of milling around, not eating, costing the feed yard money, you know, because when you drop them out, you know, the semi, the pot belly pulls up, you unload them, you want them to go out and start eating and uh, and not have that shifting fever too. So, you know, you know that's, that stress, usually weaning is the highest stress in the calf's life, or it should be. So, you know, that's already out of the way you know, that it's hopefully uphill from there. There's, as long as there's no problems in shipping, you know, you want that calf to hit the ground eating and it's going to be a healthy calf. It's going to make that producer that buys it more money. That This is the ideal system for me. If I had the choice, I, I would want almost all cattle, all calves to be backgrounded at 60 days. I it, It's really important. Bunk broke, you know, people don't think about it enough, but those calves need to be water broke too. They some of those cattle, especially if you're coming from out west, they don't know what a waterer looks like. They've never seen one in their life. So I think it's a huge deal. Uh and it and it obviously pays. And, and especially when you pull these calves, you got that buy, that that power in the market to be able to get a certain price. And and I like the 60 days over 45. I'm I'm always gonna like 60 days over 45 because I think a true respiratory break from the the stress of weaning that day one a true respiratory break is going to happen anywhere from 28 to 42 days. So at 45, you can still potentially see a respiratory break. And if you go to 60, I just feel so much more comfortable that those calves are, are that much closer to being bulletproof. So I, I'm a big fan. I, I, that sounds like an amazing program. And you know that water, you know, you don't think about water. You're just talking about, you know, knowing what that water trough is. I mean, and y'all probably see these out in the feed yards. Uh, when I done an internship out in the, panhandle of Oklahoma one year. You just bump up the ration a little bit, make it a little hotter, a little hotter, a little hotter, where you won't hit that acidosis mark. And you kind of want to push them, but don't push them too far. You know, you want to get that residue in that bunk when you're reading that bunk. You don't want it lick clean, you don't want it full, you want that residue. And uh, one day I come up, it's like four o'clock in the morning, and I hit the light and there's a lot of feed in the bunk. And I was like, oh crap, I'm in trouble. You know, I, I messed up the, the math and I, I, they, I put them all in acidosis. Well, what happened? A storm comes through that night, knocked out the whale, knocked out the water. They didn't have water. They don't eat. That's a big part of it. Oh, it, it's a huge piece. We forget about it all the time. Uh, obviously, in the winter, we, we tend to think about water a little more just because we're checking waters for, for yeah. freezing over and things like that. But you can't, you can't get away from it. it. It's the most important nutrient. And like you said, I mean, it's directly tied to dry matter intake. If they don't have the water, they're not eating. Now, the only other thing I had a question of, we were kind of talking about this beforehand. There's not a whole lot of silage that gets made in, in West Virginia. So when you guys are backgrounding these calves, are you, are you putting in fermented feeds or, or is that no, not something not that really. happens? Do they feed fermented feeds in the feedlots in West Virginia? They have some small feedlots like at our bull sale, our bull test. We are a forage-based, uh, you know, test. So they do a lot of corn silage there, haylage, and then some of the, the feeder uh, or feed lots, you know, the smaller ones that we do have, uh, you know, and the dairies even, you know, the ones we do have, they are usually a corn silage-based 
forage and, and nutritional plan there. Uh, but in the capital, we're mainly feeding, you know, and that's something we haven't really set a huge standard for amongst our producers. We kind of let them choose what they want to feed and precondition on. Some start, you know, the old jump start, you know, the pellet, you know, that that's some uh, stampede. I mean, that has a little on a four. I can never, I always get tongue tied on that one. Uh, <laughs> in it, you know, a little growth promotion there. Uh, I'm going with a 12% uh, corn based with, uh, I always start them off with a little bit of soybean pellet and, and uh, soybean pellet to increase the fiber. And then I take that away slowly, you know, kind of like a feedlot ration would do. Um, I do that because that's usually the most economical. And since I'm an extension agent, I do not have the ability to have a large herd. So I have to make every dollar count. So that's just economical uh, for me. And that's the reason I do. Interesting to see, you know, that's one of those things that in the backgrounding period, if you, that, that's where the communication comes in between where, you, if you know where your cattle are going. Uh, I love to, any communication back and forth uh, from the end to the, to the beginning is helpful for everyone involved. And so, yeah, we have a lot of backgrounding operations that are introducing fermented feeds just so that when they hit that feedlot and they see that silage, they don't turn their nose up. And it does take a little time for cows. Mm -hmm. And now I do have one producer that does a lot of haylage. So, you know, he'll get those wrapped bales and he'll put them out there. And, you know, after about a day or two, they eat them like candy. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you don't, you don't want to wait that day or two. So if, if we do have a buyer, you know, that is interested um you know and they do you know ask about that we can put them into more calves that has been uh, you know exposed to that baleage and they should transition really quick from baleage to silage uh let's see what else do we want to talk about well you guys have you've mentioned the bull test quite a bit Walk oh yes through. the bull test the bull test and <laughs> i've I, always been confused by this so maybe i'll get it this <laughs> so it's a little like so when i say bull test when i say get your bull tested i mean probably something completely different um well I'm we do that too i mean we actually you, okay. you know we we do a, a breeding soundness exam good on all these bulls uh what what is this program is for more seed stock operators okay this wanting to sell breeding stock so they are able to bring, and we have a heifer program too that runs right along with this. So they bring their heifers or their bulls in, and we put them on feed for an X amount of number of days. And then we weigh them every so you know many days. And then we take you know pelvic measurements, we take hip height, we take uh, you know for the bulls scrotal circumference, you know, we do the muscle ultrasound. We do, you know, of course, breeding soundness. So, you know, make sure that bull is ready to go out and breed cattle when you open that trailer door at your, at your farm. So we, we test all these bulls. We take, you know, a top portion of them. You know, we have cutoff lines on each of the categories. And as long as they're above those lines, we will put them in a sale and uh, operators around the state or cow-calf operators can come by this uh, local bulls that has been finished on a forage diet. And I like the forage-based diets, you know, in our area, because they're going to go out on grass. They're not going to get grained all the time. They're not eating corn residue crops. And so, so it's more a little closer to what they would get at home. Um, but they are young bulls. 
And I think the biggest problem we have is, and, and we, we've done this and we keep trying to do this, is, you know, educate the producer too when you buy a young bull. Yes, we can say that a bull can service 25 cows, but a young bull that's ready out of the gate, he, he's not ready to sire 25 cows. You know, put him with 12 cows. 12 cows, he can take care of maybe even 15, but he is not to his mature state yet. So give him a year or so and then increase your herd up a little bit for him. And, and I think, and there we do have bulls that go out and breed 25 cows, but what happens is what I say, they, they say they melt. You know, they lose body condition score and they're just running themselves to death. And so if you buy a young bull, just keep that in mind. Don't, you know, start him off slow and then increase. Uh, I think that's more of an education, you know, for producers. You, we see that because, you know, I think we still have a little bit educate there on that side. Well, that's, that's a great opportunity having the sale to begin with and the test. And that's my biggest question every time when I'm talking bull testing is what does the nutrition look like? Uh, when, you, when you're in there and you're feeding them, you know, and they're just, you're just lobbing grain at them and they're putting on weight. And it just makes me cringe every time. I hate fat bulls. I hate bad feet on bulls. It's just, you're ruining them. Yeah. So I, it's really good to hear you guys are doing it right. Uh, and, and like you said, the, the young bull thing is, is something that I struggle with in private practice. Everyone's always wanting to push that young bull really hard. And, and, and to me, in the ideal world, I wouldn't even have my yearling bulls as part of the equation when I'm looking at bull power and numbers. You know, I, I like to pair old bulls with, or mature bulls with really young bulls and then don't count on that young bull to do much. If he does something great, if he doesn't, it's not a big deal. Your mature bulls got it. And then, yeah, following the kind of rules of thumb when you're looking at, you know, number of cows is, is going to be equal to that, that bull's age in months. So if you're buying a 15 month, you know, old bull, then he should be able to cover 15 cows. But again, those yearlings, I like to cap it at 12, like, like John David was saying. So I, I think that's a, that's a huge, huge program that you guys got going. And, and again, a great opportunity to talk to producers and just get people together to talk to them. They love getting out. They come out and, you know, early look at all the bulls and something they do is a little different at our tests and other tests across the country is they have a uh, contemporary group of three that each producer has to bring at least three bulls or heifers to the test or you can't participate. And I really like that contemporary group that gives you a little, you know, that makes your data strong. And, and that really brings it home. You know, we can all feed out bulls. We can all put our cowboy hats on and go to a sale. But this actually is looking at the data behind it and strengthening it. And, and I think if we're going to come out and we're going to pay good money for a bull, I think, you know, all the data we can get should be as accurate as we can get it. Emily, do you have a question? I saw you. I actually was going to put Bradley on the spot because he's yes. really, really, really quiet. Do it. Bradley, ask a question. I am. I've been waiting. I've been listening, but uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. actually, I'm interested in uh, you talking about. That was our wrap on our first half of our conversation with John David Johnson from West Virginia. We will be back to finish our conversation, talk a lot more about the differences when we talk about pasture and what types of grasses that we use in our different states and how we utilize those resources. Check out the website, extension.umn.edu. Scathe and rebuttals, comments, questions, any of that goes to the moose room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S. 
R-O-O-M at UMN.edu. Check us out on Facebook at UMN Beef and at UMN Dairy. Catch you next week, everybody. See ya. Bye. (laughs) I tried to move my chair on carpet and I freaking fell out of it.